Episode 3, The Dust Bowl Concept. We start today's episode in Okfuskie County, Oklahoma. It's 1912, and Nora Bell and Charles Guthrie welcome their son Woody to the world. They've named him after the man who would become president later that same year, Woodrow Wilson. Woody Guthrie had a tough childhood, to say the least. In 1926, at the age of 14, his mother was committed to the Oklahoma Hospital for the Insane. She had Huntington's disease. No one knew that at the time because, well, it was the 1920s. Unfortunately, at the same time, his father was away working in Texas to repay some debt that he owed for bad business deals. Woody and his siblings were on their own. They worked odd jobs, begged for food, and slept on the floors of family and friends. In 1929, Woody's father sent for him to come live in Texas. He struggled in school there and spent most of his time reading books in the library and earning money by playing music in the streets, or busking. In 1930, Guthrie's mother succumbed to Huntington's while still in the hospital for the insane. A year later, at the age of 19, Woody got married for the first of three times. They had three kids together, and everything was probably great until around 1934. That's when the black blizzards began. In the 1920s, when farmers first began digging into the soil of the Great Plains area, they did so without a proper understanding of the earth they were digging into. These uninformed agricultural practices were the setup for what would eventually be coined as the Dust Bowl. The 1930s was a decade full of severe economic depression combined with an extended drought, unusually high temperatures, and some very high winds. These winds picked up the loose, dry soil of the plains and carried it across the country, over and over again, in massive dust storms. People as far away as the East Coast were finding Great Plains dirt and grit in their teeth. It was bad, and men like Woody began to head further west, towards California, to try and find work. He left his family in the dust, so to speak, and found a job at a radio station, which he held until the owners fired him due to rumors that he'd joined the Communist Party. He moved back to Texas with his family for a brief period before being invited to New York. The folk music community took him in as one of their own, and the Oklahoma Cowboy, as he was known, recorded his first full-length album, Dust Bowl Ballads, in 1940. Side note, he also recorded the song, This Land Is Your Land that same year. He thought that Irving Berlin's God Bless America was overplayed and wanted to give people a patriotic option. By 1944, This Land is Your Land was put to sheet music and distributed to schools across the country. It was almost as if Guthrie wrote the first ever diss track. All right, back to the Dust Bowl ballads. It's the reason we're here after all. I'll be completely honest with you. I'm not a huge folk or country music fan. As a lover of music in general, I can certainly appreciate its place in the world, however. I've enjoyed listening to Mr. Guthrie these past few days and learning about his life. I even just downloaded his autobiography from Audible. It's read by his son, Arlo Guthrie. Woody Guthrie has influenced so many musicians with his tales of dust storms and dirty politicians. Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Bruce Springsteen, John Mellencamp, Pete Seeger, Joe Strummer, Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco... And that's just a few of the big names that list Guthrie as a major influence. He's a storyteller. And as a storyteller, from what was a very turbulent time for these here United States, he has lots to say. 
If you've never heard his music, imagine if I were to pick up a guitar, which I can't play, and start telling you about my day. Couldn't fall asleep until at least three. At half past six, I woke up to pee. Got out of bed and I took a shower. Scrolled through Facebook for just about an hour. It's like that, except he actually lived through a lot and his music had a message. I can feel what those days must have been like, leaving your family behind to try and find a job in a different state. Scrimping and saving every dime and hoping you didn't get robbed for it. One war ending and another beginning. Walls of dust slowly making their way across the country. Crooked politicians at every level. The 1930s sound like one big bummer, but luckily, heartbreak and a hard road often turn into the most memorable pieces of music. I don't believe every line of his is nonfiction. He definitely knows how to make a story bigger than what it may have been, but listening to him tell these stories really puts you into his $2 shoes. Woody Guthrie had absolutely nothing to do with this episode when I first sat down to write it, but after doing a little research into the topic, I knew he had to play a major role. After all, he is credited with being the first ever musician to write a concept album. Quick disclaimer for you. There's two reasons that I almost talked myself out of doing this episode. Number one, I want so badly to give you little snippets of the music that I'm going to discuss. The rules of playing other people's copyrighted music in a podcast are sketchy at best. It's possible I could play a few seconds of a song as long as I'm using it to inform and not for the betterment of my overall show quality, I think. But I don't want to chance it. The other reason is that I don't want to come across as a music snob or an old man who doesn't understand the music kids listen to today. I consider myself to be a semi-hip 40-something and I remind my kids how cool I am every chance I get, just ask them. I just want them to know that there's a whole world of really great music out there that isn't on the TikTok app. Concept albums are not only an example of some really good music, but also masterful storytelling. You may also know concept albums as rock operas. The definition of concept is an abstract or general idea inferred or derived from specific instances, like living through the dust storms, drought, and depression of the 1930s. Woody may have been the godfather of concept albums, and they're known in pretty much every music genre. But the 60s and 70s and rock and roll music are what made the concept of a concept album really take hold. Music critics and even musicians themselves have never really been able to agree on what makes something an actual concept album. Some of the ones I will discuss in this episode might even be more so considered rock operas. I happen to think that rock operas fall under the wider net of concept albums. You will no doubt get to the end of this episode and say something like, What about my favorite band? You didn't mention them. So I will tell you ahead of time that I realize, especially after digging as much as I did while researching this, that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of concept albums out there. Even if I narrowed that down to the bands most of us have heard of, it would still be far too many to discuss in a podcast. So what I've done is pick out a few that are either too epic to ignore or impacted me in some way. Wikipedia will tell you that a concept album is an album whose tracks hold a larger purpose or meaning collectively than they do individually. The album, in my opinion, needs to tell a story track by track or at least be a collection of stories about one topic, like Woody and his dust storms. Singers like Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby played around with conceptual recordings in the 40s and 50s. The way they would organize their songs on a few early albums created a mood and oftentimes had a common theme. 
But the late 60s, as I mentioned, is where concept albums grew legs and took off. 1966's Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, although obviously brilliant, doesn't check the complete storytelling box for me. And Sgt. Pepper's could be its own podcast. I'm a pretty big Beatles fan. We'll save that for another time. Let's begin our little journey instead with the rock operaist concept album of them all. Now boarding the Curator 135 time machine, destination 1969. Okay. 1969's album Tommy by The Who was their fourth studio album. Other than Ray Davies of The Kinks, whose Village Green Preservation Society album was conceptual and amazing as well, guitarist Pete Townsend is looked at as one of the most masterful storytellers in rock and roll. He's written over 100 of The Who's tracks. In 1967, The Who released The Who Sell Out, a concept album in its own right, but not in the storytelling sense. The album played out like a pirate radio broadcast, complete with wacky spoof commercials about baked beans and deodorant. Two years later, Townsend would finally get the rest of the band on board with his idea for a rock opera. I like to imagine what that first meeting was like with Roger Daltrey, Keith Moon, and John Entwistle sitting around a table listening to Townsend spin his tale of a deaf, dumb, and blind kid who loved pinball. It's obviously about more than that, and the whole pinball thing wasn't even added until later on in the writing process. I still wonder if it was a hard sell at first. The Note version of Tommy is this. A boy, Tommy, is born. His childhood is pretty meh. And then he witnesses a horrible tragedy and the reflection of a mirror. The trauma of seeing this event play out leads him to become canatonic. He is considered to be deaf, dumb, and blind by everyone around him. Somehow, as a teenager, he becomes very good at pinball, despite his state, and eventually gets a visit from a queen who opens his mind, returns him to the mirror where he saw the tragic event, and then directs him to smash said mirror. Now Tommy is back, and people are blown away by his recovery. He becomes a messiah of sorts, but eventually his followers turn their backs to him, and he's a lone, lonely loner once again. Pete Townsend says that the album represents nothing more than the cycle of life. Only three songs charted, Pinball Wizard, I'm Free, and See Me, Feel Me. The last one not actually being an individual track on the album, it's the second and third parts of the final song. When I worked in radio, I spent a solid chunk of that time being a 7 to midnight DJ at a classic rock station in Toledo. Our playlist was very small, too small, but it included the three aforementioned songs in heavy rotation. I can also remember playing Sparks and Tommy Can You Hear Me once in a while. The album wasn't released in an attempt to score a couple of chart-topping hits. Townsend and the boys wanted to put something out that fans could enjoy in its entirety. Tommy was made into a movie in 1975 and starred Roger Daltrey as Tommy. The film also featured Elton John, Tina Turner, Anne Margaret, Eric Clapton, and Jack Nicholson. The film did very well by 1970 standards and still holds around a 70% favorable rating on sites like Rotten Tomatoes. The musical production of Tommy hit Broadway in 1992. I was lucky enough to see it when it came through Detroit in the beginning of 94. It was excellent, although I'm sure I didn't appreciate it like I would now. The album, movie, and musical all tell the story a little differently, but each feature The Who's amazing soundtrack. Alright, it's time to hop in my time machine and move ahead three years. All aboard the Curator 135 time machine, destination 1972.
1972 is the year that David Bowie released The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Ziggy Stardust, I'll shorten it for the purposes of not having to say the full title every time, was Bowie's fifth studio album. Like the Who's Tommy, it falls under the rock opera subcategory. A year before the Ziggy Stardust album, Bowie released the album Hunky Dory, a great album in its own right, featuring songs like Changes, Oh You Pretty Things, and Life on Mars. Hunky Dory was heavily piano-driven, due mostly to Bowie's keyboardist at the time, a gentleman named Rick Wakeman. Wakeman turned down the offer from Bowie to be a part of his Spiders from Mars band and instead joined the prog rock band Yes. With the departure of Wakeman, Bowie wanted to make Ziggy Stardust more guitar-centric, a proper touring album. He had a love of theater, dance, pantomime, kabuki, cabaret, and science fiction. He was also very inspired at the time by Iggy Pop and Lou Reed. Throw all those ingredients in a pot, and out comes Ziggy Stardust. Unlike a typical concept album, most of the songs were written first, then the story came along. The story is wild, as only David Bowie can deliver, and I promise to keep it as PG as possible. Ziggy is an androgynous rock star, part of an alien race known as the Starmen. He and his band, the Spiders from Mars, are sent to Earth to warn us of an apocalyptic disaster that's coming in the next five years. Ziggy Stardust becomes the savior of the planet, a rock god. Admired by teens and hated by parents, eventually old Ziggy gets a little too big for his own skin-tight britches, and we hear his downfall and later death. Bowie had gone on to say that he got so into the character on stage that it became hard to shed the persona when out in public. He felt it was too dangerous, and he began to question his sanity. He quickly created another persona for his next album, named Aladdin Sane. Say it slowly with me. Aladdin insane. To this day, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars is widely considered to be one of the best rock albums of all time. I've listened to it no less than 10 times in the past week. Every track is stellar. It tells a great story for a concept album that had its songs before its story. Moon Age Daydream, Starman, Ziggy Stardust, Suffragette City. I could just list them all. It's that good. They released a live album and live concert film some years later. All aboard the Curator 135 Time Machine. Next stop, 1979. Pink Floyd had already put out 10 studio albums by the time The Wall was released, two of which, Dark Side of the Moon and Animals, were also concept albums. They had already banished one member, Sid Barrett, due to an abuse of substances and mental stability, and the egos of frontmen David Gilmour and Roger Waters were starting to clash. They were finishing up their previous album's tour, which Roger Waters despised. It was their first stadium tour, and Waters wasn't a fan of the raucous party atmosphere and felt that people weren't really paying attention. Fans set off fireworks in the crowd at one show, and in another show, the last of the tour, Waters got so upset at a group of noisy audience members that he leaned over and spat on them, and then walked off stage. It was that loogie, my friends, that birthed the idea of The Wall. After the tour, most of the band went their separate ways to work on side or solo projects. Waters, after explaining to a psychiatrist that he wished he could build a wall between himself and the fans, got to writing the epic tale of a man named Pink. Pink, by the way, was based partially on Sid Barrett. What? Full circle sound effect. 
The band was hemorrhaging money due to some bad financial investments and wanted to get back to work on another Pink Floyd album. In walks famed music producer Bob Ezrin to save the day. Ezrin may not be a familiar name to some, but he should be. He's worked with Alice Cooper, Kiss, Peter Gabriel, Fish, Deep Purple, and countless others. So with Ezrin's ability to mend fences between bandmates and Roger Waters' script and ideas, The Wall was born. Waters wove in parts of his own life story with pieces of Sid Barrett to flesh out the character of Pink. In the music of The Wall, we find a boy who is being raised by his mother while his father fights in World War II. His father dies, and then we find Pink in school having issues with his teachers. All of these traumas become bricks in the hypothetical wall that he's building around himself. Then we hear that Pink is a rock star, but a sad rock star. He's on tour, he's doing bad things, and finally he locks himself in his hotel room. He's depressed and hallucinating until finally his manager is able to bust into the room. Pink goes through more hallucinations until he realizes that he's had enough, tearing down the wall and finding the outside world. It sounds kind of depressing. And it is. Delightfully, beautifully depressing and amazing and wonderful. The music is out of this world good. 26 tracks clocking in at over 80 minutes. And then, a couple of years later, they made a movie out of it. In 1982. One I watched a hundred times as an older teenager. What do you want to do tonight, Nathan? Let's watch The Wall. It certainly felt like something bigger than I could understand at the time. I just liked the mix of cartoon visuals, the dark setting, and Bob Geldof as Pink was amazing. Seeing those songs come to life on screen was pretty awesome too. Still is. There's also been various The Wall tours with elaborate stage setups, as well as an opera. Critics seemed to either love it or hate it. Some people didn't get it. Others didn't like the imagery. Dark Side of the Moon was definitely easier for some to swallow. As far as storytelling goes, and the idea of a concept album, it's right up there near the top for me. Mother. Goodbye Blue Sky. Hey You. Young Lust. Another Brick. Comfortably Numb. Run Like Hell. Amazing. Another side note. When I was hired for my first full-time radio job at the same station I mentioned before, my program director forgot to give me my on-air name. About five minutes before I first went on the air, the afternoon DJ and I decided on Dave Waters. It was a nod to my father, Dave, and a mashup of David Gilmore and Roger Waters. I was young and thought Waters had two T's. It doesn't. So really I was Dave Wetters for about nine years. All right, it's time machine time again. We're going to bypass the 80s and 90s because the MTV era wasn't kind to the concept album. Time Machine, take me to 2004. American Idiot was Green Day's seventh studio album. Growing up as a fan, I couldn't have predicted this turn for the band. When Dookie came out, like everyone else my age, I was hooked. I instantly went and purchased their two 1991 albums and eagerly awaited to hear more from the band. The years 95 and 97 each gave us new Green Day albums, which were both solid. By 2000, Billy Joe Armstrong, Mike Durant, and Trey Cool were becoming the adults in the punk rock room. Still able to punch you in the face, but in a more mature style. They put out the album entitled Warning, which was critically acclaimed but proved to be a bit of a bump in the road sales-wise. It was their first release as part of a major label that didn't go platinum. The band took a bit of a break, but then went back into the studio around 2002. They had songs written and recorded for a new album they were going to call Cigarettes and Valentines, but then had their master tapes stolen. 
Eventually, they got them back, but decided it would be best to move in a new direction. In a weird way, I guess we can thank whomever the thief was for helping create American Idiot. The band patched up their differences and got to work, studying some of the already mentioned concept albums, as well as musicals. The events of the early 2000s played a pretty big role in the subject matter. Between 9-11 and the war with Iraq, folks coming of age during that time were having a difficult time. American Idiot focuses on three characters. The main character, who is Jesus of Suburbia, a fella named St. Jimmy, and a gal named What's-Her-Name. Our pal Jesus leaves his small town feeling ignored and stuck in the lower middle class, forgotten by politicians and stuffed suits as he heads for the big city. He goes on to meet St. Jimmy and What's-Her-Name, each prompting him to become something different. St. Jimmy is a rebel and represents aggression and anger. What's-Her-Name is calmer and encourages morals and belief. Throughout the entire musical story, you can practically hear Armstrong's anger. He was angry at President Bush. He was angry at the news media glorifying the war. He was angry at big companies destroying the mom-and-pop stores. And it was all being told through the voices of the story's characters. This coming-of-age-in-a-difficult-time concept album, Slash Rock Opera, went on to produce five powerful singles. American Idiot, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, Holiday, Wake Me Up When September Ends, and Jesus of Suburbia. It also won Best Rock Album at the 2005 Grammys. Rolling Stone placed it on its 500 greatest albums of all time in 2012 and again in 2020. It also became an award-winning Broadway musical, and for a few years the band and fans thought it would be made into a movie. Armstrong spoke about it in 2019, stating that any movie projects had been scrapped. Green Day hadn't fallen off by any means, but they had grown older. The infighting worsened with Trey and Mike feeling less and less respected by their frontman. They'd had their hard work stolen. American Idiot sort of became a big old slap of the reset button for them, breathing life into a band that has since gone on to make six more albums, their last as recent as 2020. It indeed came out at a time when it was needed, something for their aging fans and new fans to cling on to during a difficult time. Now boarding the Curator 135 time machine? No, no, I don't need it. We're just heading to 2006. I'll walk. 2006 was sort of a weird time for me. I left Toledo for a fancier job in Detroit that ended up not being what it was supposed to be. The boss I worked for was an intolerable, plump, southern old man that hated me from the get-go because I took over for his favorite employee. So I wasn't having fun in the business anymore. I was also going to be a father soon. It was this weird, I need to grow up, but I don't really want to grow up phase in my life. After years of being in classic rock radio, those songs had all become unlistenable to me. I couldn't listen to Detroit radio stations because it reminded me of my poor decision to leave a smaller market. So I often went to my 336 CD Case Logic CD case and rifled through it to find the music that fit my mood. Even back then I had a wide appreciation for music and with it being my I don't want to grow up phase, while I still loved my radio head and my tool, I think I was pretty hooked on bands like Fallout Boy, Panic at the Disco, 30 Seconds to Mars, and Jimmy Eat World. I don't think I was probably the intended target for those bands, or if I was, I was near the very edge. Like the black ring on a dartboard. Zero points, but at least I made it on the board. I just liked music with character. And while some of that was cookie-cutter stuff, a lot of those bands had great stage presence, theatrics, and appeared to be talented musicians. Plus, it all brought out my inner emo. Double plus, Jared Leto, lead singer of 30 Seconds to Mars, is super dreamy. I got to meet him once. His eyes are magnets of passion. My Chemical Romance was one of those bands. I wasn't a hardcore fan. 
I still have never heard their first album. 2004 is when I was introduced to them, with great songs like Helena and I'm Not Okay. Then, in 2006, they busted out with a tremendous rock opera concept album that blew my mind. The Black Parade is about a character stricken with cancer named The Patient. Early on in the album, he dies. I'm pretty sure. What follows is an entertaining, sometimes gut-wrenching look at The Patient as he travels through the afterlife, reflecting on his life, I think. People have all sorts of theories, but the storytelling and switching up sounds from track to track and the characters that are introduced are all wonderful. There is no denying that lead singer Gerard Way was a creative genius. My chem, that's what the cool kids call them, embarked on a two-year tour to support the album. They would come out as a band called The Black Parade, much like Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, and do the first half of each show as the fictional band as if they were the openers for My Chemical Romance. They wore outfits, not unlike Sgt. Pepper's, that were designed by the award-winning designer that Tim Burton often uses. That same lady also had a hand in designing a few of the videos from the album, which are great as well. The Welcome to the Black Parade video is especially lovely and actually sort of tells the story of the entire album in one video. Speaking of videos, if you get the chance and you're interested, they made a DVD-CD combo package out of the last performance of the tour. It took place in Mexico, and they called it The Black Parade is Dead. Much like Bowie again, after putting in two years of touring, it was time to call that phase quits. Anyway, it's on YouTube. It's free. In its entirety. The band broke up in 2013, but then decided to get together for a reunion tour in 2020. Tickets sold out worldwide in minutes. Then, COVID happened. They're hoping to reschedule everything for this year. Gerard Way has always stayed busy by focusing on his other love, graphic novels. In around 2007, he started writing a little graphic novel called The Umbrella Academy. Every few years, another series would come out, and it grew in popularity. Then, of course, Netflix optioned it for a series, as we all know. The show is excellent and has a great soundtrack. Season 3 begins filming in February, and another round of graphic novels will be released this year as well. He also writes for Marvel and helped co-create one of the alternate universe Spider-Men. Spider-mans? Doesn't matter, it's a girl anyway. She'd go on to be one of the characters in the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse movie. All aboard the Curator 135 time machine. I'll take you up on it this time, I'm tired. Last stop, 2009. Alright, as the man said, this is the last stop. This episode has probably been as long as my first two combined. I hope you've stuck with me. I've saved my favorite, and probably least known, for last. I hate to end on a Debbie Downer note, but this album was almost literally life-altering for me. I keep it to myself, like a secret diary. I selfishly want it for me and me only, and also, I get a little hung up on the whole Hey, why does someone with depression listen to depressing music? thing. I like to be happy, don't worry. I'm a wedding DJ after all. There's times I want to cha-cha slide, and then there's times I just want to feel the music. I want to wrap it around me like a blanket and absorb some of its creativity. Perfect Circle's 13th Step, Nine Inch Nails, Year Zero, Bon Iver for Emma, Forever Ago, Kendrick Lamar, Good Kid, Mad City, Arcade Fire, Suburbs, all albums that say something. Not just in one or two tracks, but over the course of the entire album. All right, the life-altering album. By 2009... The Ford Motor Company started offering six months of Sirius XM radio with its lease vehicles. 
While I listen to Alt Nation more nowadays, back then I was really into what the Sirius XMU station was playing. Indie rock mostly, college stuff. One day a song came on from a band I had never heard of called The Antlers. The song was called Bear. The first lyrics are, There's a bear inside your stomach, the cub's been kicking from within. He's loud, though without vocal cords, we'll put an end to him. It poured out of the speakers of my lease vehicle and sort of hung on to me like wet leaves. Based on hearing one song from a band I didn't know, I immediately purchased the whole CD. It's entitled Hospice. Ten songs, nearly 52 minutes long. It's an ambient, dreamy, screaming record that sucks you into its story like you're best friends with a singer and you know exactly what he's going through. Or maybe you're sharing a room in a hospital with him and he sings in his sleep. You want to call the nurse to tell him to shut up, but it's too beautiful and you need to know how it ends. The main character is a hospice worker who falls in love with a terminally ill cancer patient named Sylvia. He knows he shouldn't pursue anything, but can't help it. Sylvia denies him at first, not wanting to fall in love so close to her death. By the third and fourth song, we learn that Sylvia is not such a great human being. Maybe part of that's understandable. But she is abusive to the hospice worker, despite him trying his best to make her happy. We also discover that they are now married. The couple goes through other struggles. I'll let you discover those for yourself. Eventually, Sylvia passes away, and the last few songs in the album describe how the now former hospice worker comes out the other side. At least that's what I took away from it after the first dozen listens. While the track titles and lyrics certainly give you that impression, upon reading interviews and fan theories, you start to understand that it could be a metaphor for an abusive relationship. The Antlers lead singer, and early on only member, Peter Silberman wrote most of the album in the bedroom of his tiny Brooklyn apartment. Signs would point to hospice stemming from a personal situation, but he's never come out and said so. He put out a couple of albums and EPs previously under the Antler's name, but hospice is what put him and his new bandmates on the map. Silberman's voice throughout the album, by the way, is haunting and fluctuates between sadness and anger in a beautiful way. It might take you a minute to get used to it. The story is sad. His voice is sad, but somehow you come out of it feeling like the hospice worker is going to be okay. I could talk about this record all day, but it'll get weird and emotional, so I'll leave it up to you to decide if you want to check it out. The Antlers released three outstanding albums in 2011, 2012, and 2014. Silberman put out a solo album in 2017, and the band is back together and releasing a new album called Green to Gold. It's coming out in March of 2021. So, there you have it. Six concept albums, or rock operas, that made an impact on me, plus a whole lot of details about the Dust Bowl troubadour who started the whole idea. I realized that there were some glaring omissions, and maybe one day, if this podcast thing sticks around for a while, we can dive into six more. If you've listened to the first couple of episodes, you'll know that I'm into storytelling, in whatever form. Books, television, graphic novels, movies, listening to old people who lived through more interesting stuff than I have, or a concept album. To take the art of music and be able to tell a story with it and have it connect with people is a talent I only wish I had. Maybe that's why I'm so into and appreciative of them. Until next time, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. Hey guys, it's Nathan. Please don't forget to check out my website, curator135.com. It has links to all the podcasts, as well as music from the episodes that I've put up on SoundCloud.
You can stop by and say hi, look at some pictures. I'm also on Facebook. Just search Curator135 and Twitter at Curator135.